fine. That's my mistake. Well, it worked. There's a difference between. What a joy to be able to sing uh, that glorious hymn uh, together. Shall we uh, bow in prayer, keep Genesis 2 open in front of you, and as we do that, let's pray. Lord, help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face that all the things of earth may grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. Amen. A few years ago, the uh, BBC Earth began what they called Being Human Season. Uh, It was a season of programming exploring what it means, strangely enough, to be human. It was described as a global selfie One of the visionaries behind this season of programs made some very telling comments. Listen to what he said. He asked the question, what does it mean to be human? It's a question, he said, that priests, poets, philosophers, and politicians, I like the alliteration, I thought he should have been a preacher, uh, a question that they have all sought to answer, but all fell short. And yet he goes on to explain how a series of BBC documentaries was now going to succeed in answering the question, where priests and poets, philosophers and politicians have all failed, he was now going to answer. It was good to know that the license fee wasn't entirely wasted. He went on to express the view that humanity is just a species of primate uh, that emerged 100,000 years ago. Not the strongest of animals, he said, but we were helped by the fact that we have an unusually large brain or at least some of us, uh, that we were able to stand on two legs and therefore use our hands to build tools. And then he says we were able to develop language. And all of those things made humanity stand out above the rest of creation. Here's his conclusion. Today, we stand astride the world as a God. To be human is to be at the center of our own universe. What a tragic conclusion to reach. What does God's word say on the matter? What does it mean to be truly human? Well, that is a question to which Genesis 2 has the answer. This glorious chapter that turns our attention from a cosmic scale and zooms in on planet Earth and goes into more detail about what took place on day six of creation week. Now, if you've got to the end of this week, like I have, and thought, what a week. Some of you will know what a week we've had, but sometimes you get to the end of a week and thought, I've got no idea how I've got to the end of it, no idea how I've fitted it all in. Just look at God's week, and especially this sixth day, and look at what he fitted in. Genesis 2 shows us a world in which perfect relationships existed. Man with woman. Man and woman with God. Genesis 2 unveils to us the extraordinary things that God did on this sixth day of creation week. It unveils to us what it means to be truly human. 
Uh, and more than that, it, it lays in place the foundation for the unfolding message of the entire rest of the Bible. Now, normally, I try in, uh, in my sermon prep, I try to come up with a one-sentence summary of what a passage is teaching us. Uh, but there are some theologians who have gone a step further and tried to summarize the message of the entire Bible in one sentence. Uh, and one of those theologians, a guy called Graham Goldsworthy, concluded that the whole message of the Bible is about the kingdom of God. And he describes the kingdom of God like this, God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's a theme taken up by two great theologians of the modern day by the name of Orson Cutlery. Um, some of you have no idea who I'm talking about. Um, those of you will, young children may, and if you don't, you ought to. Uh, but Orson Cutlery are a band who write great, superb Christian songs for children. And one of their songs traces the message of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation with the recurring refrain, God's people in God's place, under God's rule, they will know God's blessing. That is the one sentence summary of Genesis chapter 2. And so this morning, you may well be pleased to know that I do really just have that one point. Um, And we're going to look at each bit in turn. And then draw out some applications. God's people in God's place. Under God's rule, they will know his blessing. Let's look at how this unfolds uh, in Genesis 2. God's people are there. We saw last week, didn't we, that uh, humanity, human beings are the the culmination of God's creation. And Genesis 2 specifically now zooms in on the first couple who God created. Notice though in verse 4, at the very beginning of our passage... We begin with a new description of God himself. Even though this passage zooms in on humanity, we're taught something new, something fresh about God. In chapter 1, God was referred to simply as God. The Hebrew word Elohim. It's a name that draws out his cosmic power and authority, his splendor as God. This is the awesome God most high, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And yet now in chapter 2 and verse 4, Moses describes him not only as God, but as the Lord God. And in the Hebrew, this is no longer just Elohim. This is Yahweh Elohim. Moses uses the covenant name of God, the name that, that God gave his people by which they could know him personally. So immediately we are drawn to the fact that this is not just, this is not some distant God who is just interested in in the stars and the planets. This is a personal God who is interested in his people. Not just the awesome creator of the universe, but the God with a name who makes himself known personally. What an extraordinary thing to contemplate. And maybe there are some here this morning who need to remember that. Who need to remember that the God who created all things, the God who flung stars into space, is the God who reaches down and knows us personally. Well, this Lord God creates Adam. Verse 7, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Adam is created from the dust. What a humbling reminder of the frailty of our humanity. Though we are made in the image of God, 
as we saw last week, we're made in the image of God. We are not God. We are made from the earth. And we will return to the earth. God forms man from the dust. But then what does he do? He personally breathes life into his nostrils. You see, human beings have both an earthly origin and a heavenly origin. We are made from the earth, but we are given life from heaven. What an extraordinary thing. This man, created in the image of God, alive with the breath of God, well, he's alone in this newly created world. This is day six, remember. All the animals have just been created. Now Adam is there, and he's alone. Does he realize he's alone? Well, how would he? Why would he? He's got nothing to compare his existence to. He's got no way of knowing that he's alone. Uh, And later on in verse 18, we read, read that it's God who determines that it's not good for him to be alone. That is not man's uh, thinking. That is God's thinking. So what does God do? Well, he brings all the animals to Adam for naming. The privilege of naming the animals is is a demonstration of his authority over them. That the authority that he'd been given in chapter 1. Adam exercises that authority in naming the animals. Well, what's going on? Is, is God hoping that somewhere along the line, out of the giraffes and lions and the bears and the birds, somewhere along the line, he might find a suitable companion for Adam? It's often said that a dog is a man's best friend. Uh, and in fact, one dog lover once said, the more I get to know people, the more I love my dog. Well, I love my dog, but it's not because I don't love people. It wasn't me that said it, but dogs can be great friends. Monkeys can perform wonderful acts. Parrots can mimic voices. Is that what's going on here? God trying to find the best friend he can from among the animals. Of course, that's not what's going on. God knows what he's created, and God knows precisely what Adam needs. What God is doing, it seems, is is bringing Adam to a gradual awareness that he is alone. As if God is showing Adam all the the other living creatures in all of creation, and slowly Adam is going to become aware that there is not another creature on this planet like him. And it strikes me that the reason God is doing that is because it's only once Adam realizes how alone he is that he will truly be ready to love Eve. He's ready to love another human being. And so God puts Adam into a deep sleep in order to create Eve from one of his ribs. It was the the Puritan Matthew Henry who rather wonderfully put it like this. He said that Eve was not made from Adam's head so as to rule over him. She wasn't made from his feet, so as to be trampled on by him. She was made from his side to be his equal, under his arm to be protected, close to his heart to be loved. The woman God makes is therefore built of the same stuff, the same DNA as Adam. That is the basis of her equality with him. And in her, God provides for Adam the perfect companion. Notice she is described uh, in verse 18 as a helper. That is not a derogatory term. It in no way implies that she is his servant. In fact, one of the most common ways that the Old Testament uses that term helper is in describing God himself. God, the helper of Israel. 
don't ever misunderstand what God is teaching us about the relationship between man and woman in Genesis 2. Men and women are undoubtedly different. It's how God has created us. Men and women undoubtedly have differing roles in the home and church. That is, that is how God has ordained it and the Bible explains it. But men and women are without doubt equal in value and dignity. So this is the first couple, God's people. And they're in God's place. Verse 8, God has planted a garden. That is what God, uh, this is God's doing. He is the divine gardener, lovingly creating the perfect place, the perfect environment for his people to live. He made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Verse 10, there was a river there flowing through the garden, from the garden. A river that gives moisture and water for the plants and trees. There were also gold and precious jewels there. What a, what a beautiful, perfect environment for Adam and Eve. Last summer, we were on holiday in uh, Cornwall. We visited the Eden Project. It's a huge botanical center that shows plants and flowers from across the world. It, it seeks to, to trace the story of the earth back through its history. Uh, and as we were there, you can probably imagine my frustration growing uh, at e every corner. But you can walk through a rainforest section uh, and look down from the canopy. You can smell the, the flowers in an English country garden. And yet the Eden Project is nothing like the perfect garden God created. And at every turn, it denies the existence of its creator, which I found quite ironic given its name. Uh, but this place that God has created for Adam and Eve to live is a place of pure joy. Notice verse 15. They were to work there. Work is not a consequence of the fall. Work is ordained by God in his creation. And Adam is given the responsibility to work, or, or more literally, actually, to serve. And take care of the place God has given him. And it's interesting that the only other places in all of the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the only other places where those two verbs, work or, or serve and take care, the only places that those are found together are in the context of the Levites, who are to serve and take care of the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? Well, it's the place where God lives with his people. And that's what Adam was to do in Eden. He's to take care of the place where God lived with him. A perfect place. Wonderfully and lovingly created by God for his people. A where, place where God lived with them. They were in perfect harmony with their creator God. God's people in God's place. And they were under God's rule. You know, many people think that freedom is releasing yourself from all constraint. The trouble is, people have absolutely no idea of the, the chaos, the anarchy that would result if everybody did that. It, it's built into the human psyche that there is a need for order, a need for boundaries. Why is that? Could it possibly be, I wonder, could it possibly be because right at the beginning, God decreed there should be some boundaries? What a radical idea that might be. And we discover, discover in Genesis 2 that ultimately life and freedom are found only within God's gracious law, God's rule. One theologian put it 
like this. The first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. Well, Adam and Eve didn't have to look far for their master. They knew him. They knew him better than any of us do. And their master, the Lord God, outlined his rule for his people in his place. Verse 9, in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now God must have said that to Adam in ways that he could understand. The whole concept of death would have been alien to him. And yet somehow God clearly communicates to Adam that the consequence of eating from that forbidden tree would be the unnatural separation of body and soul, what we know as death. And the implication, of course, is that Adam and Eve are free to eat from the tree of life. They were free to eat from all the other trees, including the tree of life. They were free to eat life, and yet, as we will find out next week, they chose to taste death. Now, God set a boundary. God's people were in God's place, and it was only under God's rule that they would know God's blessing. And Genesis 2 gives this, this kind of idyllic picture of humanity at its peak. The human race has never been so authentically human as it was now, as it was at this point. Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 knew what it meant to be truly human. God's people. In God's place, under God's rule, they will know his blessing. So what are we to make of it all? After all, we know how things develop. And, and of course, we're going to see that next week. We, we know the secret that they didn't know at this point. And we can only read Genesis 2 from our side of Genesis 3. We, we cannot really comprehend what it would have been like to be Adam and Eve at that point in history. And our minds, perhaps, are full of... Oh, what ifs, if only. Well, I think there are some applications that we can draw out from that survey of Genesis 2. Three applications, in fact. So in, in some way, in 108, this is a one-point sermon. Uh, it's also a three-point sermon. Just in case you were getting worried, I'd uh, lost count. But for reasons that I hope will be obvious, we'll spend most of the rest of our time looking at the third. But three applications that I want us to grasp this morning. Number one, embrace God's design. Now Genesis 2, Genesis 2 is foundational when it comes to a biblical understanding of all sorts of things. It's foundational for a biblical understanding of gender, that God created male and female, two genders, not some spectrum along which we can move as we choose. Genesis 2 is also foundational for when it comes to understanding God's design for marriage. And of course, that is un much under threat in our society today. And, and although the focus here clearly is on marriage, we mustn't forget the New Testament also tells us that singleness is a gift from God. We're not to get the wrong idea and think that marriage is the only way in which we can know God's fulfillment and blessing. And yet it is important that while we're here in Genesis 2, we do learn to embrace God's design for marriage. God himself is the one who created marriage. He's the one who determines what is and is not a marriage. 
Marriage, quite simply, as we discover in the Bible, is the lifelong union of one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. And that's the design we find here in Genesis 2. And yet, of course, we find ourselves in a, in a mad world in which the state has taken upon itself to redefine something that God has created. And so today, legally in this country, you can marry someone of the same gender as yourself. Uh, or you can marry someone who has changed genders. And that is not God's design. True marriage is under threat from those who would redefine it. God's marriage, God's design for marriage is, is also under threat from those who would abuse it. Husbands who do not love their wives sacrificially as Christ loves the church. Wives who don't relate to their husbands as the Bible commands us. Now, the biblical idea of the roles of husbands and wives within marriage is, is hugely out of step with modern thinking, but it's God's design. Uh, and all of the Bible's teaching on marriage finds it, its roots, its origin here in Genesis 2. Uh, and just look at what marriage does. Look at verse 24. Well, marriage creates a new family unit. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The old-fashioned language is leaving and cleaving. A husband drawing himself away from his parents, uniting with his new wife. She, in turn, of course, leaves her parents. The two create a new family unit. We need to get real about marriage. When we marry, our primary allegiance is no longer to our parents. It's to our spouse. That's why there's something deeply symbolic, isn't there? At a, at a wedding ceremony, a father walking his daughter down the aisle, and she then leaves, walks back up the aisle with her new husband. They're a new family unit. And we need to be clear about these things, about God's design for marriage. We need to embrace God's design. And I want to say particularly for those of you who are teenagers and 20-somethings here this morning, those of you who are finding your way in a morally confused world in which we live in this country. Now, for you, embracing God's design will put you at odds with your friends and your peers. But do not settle for anything less than God's perfect design that he has created for human flourishing. Marriage is a wonderful gift from God. And as the New Testament says, it pictures the loving relationship between Christ and his church. Could there be anything more beautiful than that? God's design for marriage is perfect. It is for our good. And we should embrace it. We who know what it is to which marriage points, the perfect love of Christ for us, may we embrace God's design for our marriages. But we also, perhaps even more deeply than that, need to embrace God's design for, for fellowship. That sense of companionship was the primary reason that God decreed that there was something not good in his otherwise very good creation. It is not good for humans to live on their own, God says. And I think that needs to have implications for us as a church as we think about those who, for whatever reason, are not married. Those who perhaps have never married. Those who were married and now are not married. Those 
perhaps here this morning, who may be same-sex attracted and are therefore remaining single in obedience to God's design. What about those who are not married? God does not want us to live life alone, even though we may not be married. And that is where good, true, genuine friendship comes in. How valuable that kind of friendship is, especially to those who are not married. And the church should be, the church needs to be, the place where that kind of friendship is offered and discovered. We need to embrace God's design, his design for marriage, his design for human fellowship and friendship. Second, we need to embrace God's wisdom. That is very simply the one thing that Adam and Eve did not do. We'll see that next week. They had God's will revealed to them through his word. God had spoken to Adam. He had revealed his wise rule to them. And yet we know how the story develops. And as we look back on this ideal world of Genesis 2, if nothing else, it teaches us the absolute folly of hearing God's word and disobeying it. God has revealed his sovereign wisdom to these first human beings. And we surely are challenged as to our own willingness to embrace God's wisdom in our own lives. We, if we're honest, we, we don't understand why God gave them the command not to eat of that one tree. We, we cannot always fathom why God's word says what it does. We have to be honest with ourselves. We don't always get it, do we? We don't always understand why God's word says this and not that. Especially when, quite frankly, we'd rather it said something different. But God is sovereign. God has revealed his wisdom to us and he calls us to embrace it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but embrace God's wisdom. Now, I love the, the, the bit in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, where the, the children are, are sitting with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Uh, and they hear about Aslan the lion for the first time. Uh, and as Mr. Beaver is talking, Susan is, is kind of awestruck as she listens. And eventually she asks the question, is he safe? Safe? Asks Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is not safe and cuddly. We are to fear and tremble before him. And embracing God's wisdom is very often not safe, especially in this day and age. But God is good. And his wisdom is always good. We can embrace God's wisdom. Thirdly, embrace God's son. Above and beyond anything else, Genesis 2 points us to our need for Jesus. Points us to our need for Christ, the man. And it calls us to bow at his feet, to embrace him as our Savior and our Lord, and to spend our lives in his presence, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Adam and Eve lived for a short time in the reality of what it meant to be truly human. Since then, we have all inhabited a ruined, fallen humanity. We will not experience what it means to be truly human in this lifetime. 
we need Jesus. Christ the man. We needed a man, a human being, who would do what the first man did not. Obey God's rules. And Jesus is that man. He came from God's place, as God's person, obeying God's rules. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, they will know his blessing. That has only ever been fulfilled by Jesus. The only one ever to have lived who could genuinely say, I am blessed. The only one to know God's blessing upon his human life because he obeyed his Father's will. He experienced our human existence. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, stepped into this world, taking upon himself a human body. We needed a man. And Jesus is that man. Why why did we need a man? Couldn't an angel have done it for us? Could could God not just have done something, clicked his fingers and made it all right again? Why Why did he have to become a man? It was because we needed someone, a human, to do for us what the first man didn't, willingly, joyfully obey God. Christ the man. He entered our humanity, and he lived as a human should. He lived how we cannot live, in perfect obedience to his Father's rule. As Jesus lived in this world, he obeyed his Father perfectly. And in his human body, in which he never sinned, he bore all of our sin, past, present, and future. He bore them all in his body on the cross. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. At the cross, a great exchange takes place. Whereby for those of us who trust him, all of our sin is heaped upon him and all of his perfect obedience is taken and given to us as a gift to those who believe. But that is not all. Because Jesus is not only a man on a cross. Humanity has achieved some extraordinary things and reached some extraordinary places 1911, Roald Amundsen became the first human to reach the South Pole. 1953, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay became the first to reach the summit of Mount Everest. 1969, Neil Armstrong became the first human to walk on the moon. Extraordinary places that humans have reached. But there is one place that humans have not and cannot reach. And that is heaven. There have been many attempts, some literal attempts. A few weeks' time, we'll see about the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. But also millions of humans, individual men and women, who have tried to reach heaven by their own efforts, sure that God will let them in because they've been good enough. But mere humans cannot and will not reach heaven. It is one achievement that is absolutely beyond us. And yet in heaven, there is a throne. And it's the control room of the entire cosmos. And seated on that throne, there is a man. God's man. Our man, Jesus. He's there for us. He's there on our behalf. 
And because he is there, he holds out the hope that we can get there too. A hope he gives to all who believe. Jesus is not only a man on a cross, he's a man on the throne. And because Christ, the perfect man, is in heaven by his own right, it gives us hope. There is a hope that human beings can enter heaven. There is a hope that human beings can once again enjoy the presence of God. There is hope that human beings can live forever under the perfect rule of God. It is a hope that comes through trusting in Christ, the man who bore our sufferings, the man who is now on heaven's throne. Jesus himself said in in John 3, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. There's only one man who can go up there, the man who first came down, the one whose origin is from heaven, the man who was crucified yet was raised again to life, the man who ascended in that same human body and reigns forever on the throne of heaven. Only Jesus could ascend to heaven as a human and our hope, not not of floating around on, on the clouds, our hope of a physical embodied existence in heaven in the presence of God, depends entirely upon him. For us to get there, Jesus had to lead the way. Jesus had to make a way. For us to get there, it depends on us hitching a ride with him, as it were. I said last week that Genesis is not only a book of beginnings, it is a book of longing. And chapter 2 is absolutely that. It reveals to us an ideal world that is out of our grasp. And yet it's offered as a gift of God's grace to all who will hold out the empty hands of faith. Genesis 2 points us to the man who would reconnect earth and heaven. And so we look forward to the fulfillment of all that Genesis 2 points us to when in Christ God will renew heaven and earth. And heaven and earth will once again be brought together. You know, the Bible both begins and ends with a garden paradise. In Revelation 22, we'll look at that more in home groups this week. Revelation 22, we read of a restored paradise. Eden will be restored. But more than that, as the old hymn says, in him, in Christ, the tribes of Adam boast more than their father, more blessings than their father lost. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Because the new heaven, the new earth will be greater even than Eden. A blessed perfection that can never, ever be threatened. We need Jesus Christ, the man. The perfect man. The man on a cross, the man on heaven's throne. And in him we rejoice in the glorious hope of being God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. Then we will know God's blessing. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn, Blessed Assurance.